up, world? Welcome back to another episode of Just Grow It. Today I'm joined by, man, I don't even really know how to introduce this man. When I first met him, he was talking about something that kind of blew my mind. I'd love to hear some more about, but this brother's active in a bunch of different fronts when it comes to agriculture here in Houston. So I'm joined by Jeremy Peaches today, man. Go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody. My name is Jeremy Peaches. My friends call me Jermo. Man, uh, I'm just a farmer in Houston. I grew up in Houston. I try to focus on sustainable agriculture and just a lot of policy and just food access issues. But most of all, I just like growing food. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like. I think that's when I first kind of started to say I was going to do something with agriculture here in Houston. Your name is the name that I kept hearing about. So I'm excited to be able to sit and kind of pick your brain here today. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm open to it. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start. You said you're a farmer, right? Where Where is your farm located at? My farm is located in Roshan, Texas. We've been farming at that location for about two years. And we have like a few gardens and throughout the uh, city of Houston, some community gardens and some co-op based gardens and uh, warehouses and things. So that's dope. So you say your farm out in Rocheron, man. About how many acres are you working with out there? How much land do you have out there? All together is fourteen acres. I basically just lease it from my uncle. Out of that fourteen acres, we're probably farming about four to five. Um, and he has a section where he's doing medicinal medicines and his own personal like family garden that we distribute throughout the family. We try to just grow like seasonal crops try to use as many like sustainable methods or minimize our tilling as possible. So it's something I'm, it's a process, but it's something I've been proud about. Okay. So you keep talking about sustainable, man, sustainable gardening. Can you kind of explain a little bit more about sustainable agriculture practices? Right. So sustainable agriculture practices, they're basically using practices where you already have inputs or using reuse inputs. Say, for instance, if you're composting and applying that to your fields or your garden, or say, for instance, you use different water catchment systems. Also, um, in terms of, you know, the use of different machineries, and that's not too much machineries like tilling or plowing, but more so like weed covering, providing different cover crops. All these are different ways to farm sustainably, not necessarily uh, adding different chemicals or input. So just, I would say the closest thing to think about sustainable is just, just using natural processes that God intended. And um, it can range from a lot of things, but the bottom line is, you know, using as less inputs, machineries, or different harmful things into your operation or your field or bed. Okay. Yeah, I think a lot of people, they practice some forms of sustainable agriculture already, and I think they just don't even know it. Yeah, it's just, it's just natural. Right. You know, you know, these days, you know, sustainable or sustainability is like a buzzword. But <laughs> yeah, I think. But as we go through, you know, different times, just in the ag system and the food system in the world, we're going to realize that, you know, we've been doing our grandparents been living sustainable, growing organic and fresh, all these words. So it's just, a, I would say, a minimalistic, you know, type society or minimalistic type of inputs when farming. <laughs> 
Yeah, man. I know a lot of people when they think about farming, they think they can't be successful unless they dump a bunch of chemicals onto the land or they start pumping the crops full of synthetic fertilizers. But people have been doing this since the beginning of time before the chemicals and the synthetic fertilizers. Most definitely. I think us getting away from it and more of a factory farm and commercial farm system, you know, has caused a lot of offsets, you know, not only to the land, but to people, to humans. And, you know, at one point we didn't have these same issues when we were using these methods or our ancestors or, you know, our forefathers two, three generations back. So I think it's something that we should look at in our generation. Kind of need to champion it. Like, let's get back to it. <laughs> yeah, man, I agree. I agree. You got to take care of the earth so the earth can take care of us. Most definitely. I agree, sir. Yeah, man. So what do you have growing on your farm right now? Right now, what we have growing on the farm are radishes, uh, like two different varieties, turnips, collards, mustard, a little Swiss chard, and a little lettuce. So mostly just cool weather crops. Yeah, just cool weather crops. We try to just grow whatever's in season, you know, keep what we can. But most definitely, we just try to stay seasoned with whatever is the season. So Okay. You said you got the land, the 14 acres you're on from your uncle. Is everybody in your family big into farming? No. It's funny you ask that question. I was just kind of alluding to, like, at one point, two, three generations back, all, probably almost half of Americans or African-Americans appeared were probably growing their own food or farming. So, you know, that's the case for my family. So it's like my family has, like, a even from my last name, Peaches, you know. Like I said, we, you know, my forefathers were slaves and Indians and got their land. So we worked on the, like, we were owned by a plantation that raised Peaches and, you know, created a lot of inventions in Mississippi. So, like, it's definitely in my blood. But when I look at my family, like, in the last two generations, them not farming or growing their own food, and them actually just see me do it and jump into it, you know, go to college for ag, but really the impact and how much it changes my family life in terms of like they don't grow, uh, they don't go to the store for certain foods, and my mom is switching to a more plant based diet. Now they're actually starting to come into it and be supportive. Like, you know, our company is partly owned by, you know, family members, but they didn't just grasp their own tool, which already in our blood. Like I would say farming and gardening to like this last year, year and a half. I would say it's a blessing because they starting to get into it more. You know, like my brother, he's doing like chickens and goats and he's trying to farm. So I would say now they're coming around. <laughs> that's dope, man. Y'all, I love to hear that because I think that's important. I think you probably that spark, you know, like you said, it skipped a couple of generations for your family. But then here you come and now you can kind of inspire a bunch of other people in your family and outside of your family to pay more attention to gardening, agriculture and even just living a healthier life. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I mean, you're totally correct. Because, I mean, everybody has to eat. And, you know, if you don't grow your own food or have no control over the foods you put in your body, you know, that, that's a problem. But no matter what race, color, religion, family, everybody, we all got to eat. You need clean water. <laughs> Just grow it. We all got to eat. Basic things that all human needs. 
Yes, sir. Okay. All right, man. So still talking about growing. What are some of your favorite things to grow and your least favorite things to grow? Okay. Some of my favorite stuff to grow. I always say radishes because they're easy, but I love growing like collard kale. Um, even though kale, I always like have, me and kale have a love-hate relationship. I love growing okra in the summer, in the spring, but man, it just gets to, certain varieties get too itchy and it just gets too much. I don't like growing tomatoes. Yeah. <laughs> but I love growing um, eggplant, like those those type fruit and crops. What else do I love growing? I'm starting to fall in love with fall in love with growing like different niche type stuff, you know, like the arugulas. Yeah. Uh not Swiss chard, but um Hey, Minzuna. Oh, I love Minzuna. So some of the like greens that there's more available in French eatery or culture and cuisine that in America, you know, all we pretty much use is just lettuce. Lettuce. <laughs> all the greens we know. <laughs> yeah, man. No, I, I think that's cool. More farmers, everybody who's actually producing the food, they start growing some different varieties and then it kind of forces the consumer on the back end to adjust to the new varieties that are coming. Most definitely. I totally agree. You know, the food system is going to change and it's going to shift and people's palates are going to change and they're going to be opened up to, you know, a lot of different things. But I think it's the gardener, not necessarily the farmer, that's going to change that. The gardeners are going to change the way for the farmers. They're going to open it up to the consumer and, and the farmers will be able to go grow it, you know. <laughs> okay, I didn't think about it like that. I was So you're saying the, the, the people with just regular gardens in their backyard, they're going to start growing some new varieties and then the word gets back to the farmers and then they're going to have to change. Right. Okay. You know, because as our food systems, like, as they get more local and more regional, especially with the change of COVID, more people are growing in their backyard or more people are growing, like, locally or regionally or these programs. So that education and those one-on-one local relationships at most of the farmers markets is giving the consumer like the thought of, oh, I like this. And when they go to the store or the stores that they probably shop at is in their neighborhood or, you know, if you're not shopping at Sprouts or all not not even all of these. Most of these like specialty, you know, uh, whole food grocery stores uh, compared to like a Fiesta or just your neighborhood mom and pop, they're not going to have those things. So, you know, the demand is going to be there, but the supply is going to be low. So it's going to actually allow like a smaller family farm or smaller corporate farm to, you know, start introducing more products that the consumer, you know, wants. And then the chef's going to put it, going to put it in dishes and it's just going to be that whole local feel. Okay. Regional feel that changed the way. It's like we switch it from corporate farms to like local and regional. Like probably the farmer and gardener are probably going to get their respect. <laughs> finally. Fin- finally get some respect, the farmer and gardeners, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I didn't think about it like that, but that definitely makes sense. I noticed a lot more, just a lot more eyes and attention on local farmers and, and local gardens and sourcing your produce locally. So I guess, yeah, man, you, you are 100% right. It's going to change locally and then it'll change on a bigger scale. Right, right. Okay. So I got one last question when it comes to gardening, man. Do you have any advice for uh, new gardeners or people who are just getting started when it comes to gardening? I would say I always tell people start small, go big, or grow big. <laughs> or, you know, don't give up. Like, man, it's 
sometimes gardening, when you're getting used to it or farming, you know, it's challenging. It's not easy. So just don't give up. Keep trying. It's a lot of information out there. Like, even you, too. I mean, you provide so much information and, you know, have opened people up to so many different things and different methods. Like, it's allowing other people to say, okay, yeah, I can do it. So I can say, like, just reach out to, you know, people who are doing it or done it or, you know, experience with it, you know, give it a chance. And then who will be the last thing I say? Oh, yeah, try different, like, growing systems. You know, there's more than one way to grow. Especially if you're in the city versus rural, you don't have space. Like, it's all kind of growing systems, you know, raised beds, in-ground, aquaponics, hydroponics, aeroponics, hookah culture, uh, growing in boxes, just right. grow, grow, grow as much food, you know. And then the fourth thing I would say is support the, the, the next generation of farmers and gardeners. Yeah, I think that's important. Especially in the city. Especially in the city. Because, you know, that's what most of not only the food deserts are, but the city could help the rural area, or vice versa. So we all need each other. That's what I leave with everybody. <laughs> yeah, we all in it together. We all in it together. All right, so right now you're talking about growing and trying out different systems or ways to grow, man. I know you deal with aquaponics and you big into aquaponics, man. Can you kind of tell people a little bit more about aquaponics and what it is? Yes, so um, aquaponics, um, aqua, which means fish, ponics, which means system. So it's basically similar to hydroponics itself. The fish, it creates the environment with the water to be able to provide nutrients to plants. So a fish will be in the tank. They will have their environment and their water will be circulated. So uh, aquaponics is just using fish to grow uh, food, mainly lettuce or leafy greens. Um, the nutrient-rich water is what gives the plants the nutrients. It's definitely been around forever, century and ages. I mean, the Mayans do it. It's similar to growing rice. You know, a lot of Asian cultures use hydroponic. I mean, the best way I would tell anybody to look at it is just picture water from a lake or something going down a mountaintop and it being filtered out by rock. And when that water is um, filtered out, it's still clean and, and nutrient-rich, and that water could be used to grow plants. And um, there's different type of ways to grow aquaponics. But I would say it's just using fish to grow food. <laughs> I think you touched on it. You said this has been around for centuries and ages, and I think people think aquaponics, the whole idea and concept of it, is something new. But you just said the Mayans were doing it. I think I read something about the Egyptians doing something with it. Maybe I'm confusing the Egyptians with the Romans, but I think I read something about the Egyptians messing with aquaponics too. So this isn't something new. Yeah, and the Mesopotamia, I mean... Yeah, okay. You know, it's just like, you know, how rice is grown, you know, these patties in these fields. You know, they have crawfish in there mixed in with them. Like, it's all these natural systems or environment. And it's basically mimicking nature, per se. Plants can grow in fish water, in fish waste. They don't necessarily need soil, as well as hydroponics. But hydroponics, you know, some people might use, it's only water. It's, not, it's just taking out the fish. Some people might use synthetic or, you know, non-natural nutrients or fertilizers to enhance that crop. But, 
I mean, you can call, use compost tea and things of these nature to provide organic nutrients to your plant, or food waste, or just using coffee in the grounds in the morning and things of these nature. So it's definitely, I think, something we should look at in the future, just how you can grow in a controlled environment consistently, not using a lot of water. And if you want high yields and fresh protein, you know, try aquaponics or hydroponics with I think nothing's going to ever beat that soil. (laughs) So you just said that it uses less water. I think I think some people listening, they might envision that these systems are using more water than like your regular row crops are growing in soil. But that's not the case. No, no, because like and when you put water inside of the system, say it's a 500 gallon system, that water is going to continue to be there recirculating forever. Now, you may lose a little bit in terms of absorption or, you know, heat and evaporation through the atmosphere. But that water is a small amount of water compared to a large amount of money. And that's just actually, you know, topping it off, probably using not even 10 to 15 gallons of loss of compared to somebody, you know, in one acre greenhouse, aquaponics and hydroponics is compared to growing 12 acres of crops outside. So that alone can strictly prove the point that growing in controlled or contained environments, like using aquaponics or hydroponics on a commercial or small scale, it would take up, you know, less space and be more efficient than 12 acres of in-ground. So is that something we should look at in the future? I don't think it's the where our end are, but definitely those are some, you know, technologies that could be used in inner cities or in local and regional areas uh, to provide, you know, fresh, nutritious foods. You know, not all of them. So some things, you know, won't grow or can't grow in aquaponics commercially. But just think about it. Most of the 70 to 80 percent of the lettuce we eat in the United States comes from the Salinas Valley in California or Mexico. And that's for where we eat in the Midwest or the East Coast. So just picture even if we have one or two percent of that in a low in the urban center like Houston, you wouldn't have to import from Mexico or California. You shut down on environmental and transportation costs. You create way more jobs efficiently compared to um, outside harsh field labor. Right. I mean, this is another game changer in, in the world. It's, I mean, I would say sustainability and just the future of agriculture is just going more efficient and more techy, I would say. Yes. You're saying this aquaponics and hydroponics is really more for uh, or will help out more or able to be implemented easier in an urban setting as opposed to like a rural setting. Right. It would do it just as well. You know, you see here and look at um, like even the coronavirus with and all these small, you know, all these towns where you have empty warehouse spaces or buildings or, you know, somewhere like Houston with vast amount of land, you know, putting up these structures are quite in this, not that expensive, but the long-term yield and the opportunity to create jobs, that would be a good technology to impart or employ, I would say. And just the statistics as well. You look at cities like Chicago, New York, they're already implementing these greenhouses five, ten minutes from downtowns of these urban centers. And I, this is a broad statement. I think if Houston could you know, build a strong urban farming movement, we will make the model for the industry for like all urban centers and cities in terms of sustainable agriculture and farming and gardening. Just because if you've been such a cow town for so long and now everybody's moving here, it's hot. 
So, you know, we would have the model and the template, but I know I'd be, I'd be dreaming big too much. <laughs> hey, what's up, world? Sorry to interrupt the show, but I need you to do one thing. If you like this show and you're enjoying what you're hearing so far, please take a minute to give me a five-star rating. And while you're there, like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to your podcast. Now, man, I've written articles, like blog articles about it, and I've talked about it. I say there's no reason why Houston isn't the, the epicenter of urban agriculture and what you could do as a city. Like, how are we going to let New York and Chicago beat us when it comes to aquaponics and things of that nature when we're, we have so much land and space? And like you mentioned, all the empty warehouses around. There's no reason why. Plus, I mean, look, we don't really have a winter here with these mild winters. We can grow year rounds. Man. So how are we letting places that have to stop growing for four or five months out the year beat us? Yes, sir. You're totally correct. I mean, we have all these natural disasters, like all these things. We need, that's food security. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's true, man. That's true. You touched on some good stuff, though. It just doesn't quite make sense to me why Houston doesn't get behind it. And I know, like you said, we're a cow town, but yeah, man, there's no reason why people shouldn't be coming here to Houston to learn how we do things and then take it back to where they are. Yeah, I totally agree. I think traditionally Houston has had a systematic issue with inclusion and farming and farm organizations in Houston. You know, I think if you look at a lot of the farm and farm organizations, you know, all of them specialize in certain things. And we are have traditionally worked in silos. But I think, you know, now it's coming to a point where just even in history, farmers have worked together and farm organizations that so we can create more networks and more support each other more in terms of a system and education and generate income and actually institutionalizing these things inside of our schools and our networks. Um, I think we most definitely can do that. There's some great farmers out here, great young farmers as well. The age of farmers or gardeners are changing, you know, so, you know, people like you, people like Ivy, you know, people like Becca and, uh, you know, or Mr. Robert and Marcus and things like them with their farm organizations and, you know, Chad, I like that guy. Yeah, man. All of us are just, just like a new movement, a new opportunity to really, you know, build a system that's equitable and, you know, can create opportunities for everyone. I just think it's that time and we have more than enough resources to do it. There's more than enough people in Houston, more than enough food deserts of hungry people, or there's more than enough markets. We have the best food in Houston. <laughs> That's true, man. That's true. Like, man, our chef scene, a farming table scene is, like, awesome. So It's stupid. Man. I don't think people know. I don't think it gets enough credit, man. I think that was one of the reasons why I wanted to even start this podcast is because when I started to look around Houston, well, first, let me say, I feel like Houston is late to a lot of things. And that kind of disappoints me. So when I started to see all of the dope things that are going on and from gardening to farming to, to people making their own soil blends, just 
all along the whole agriculture spectrum, man. I just wanted to shine some light on it however I could. And this is just the way that I thought I could do it. So all the people that you mentioned from Rebecca to Chaz to Ivy, like I'm trying to have conversations with them also. And so the world can get to know what we have going on down here in Houston. Most definitely. It almost, it, it almost seemed like a, a culture shift, like this is entertainment or something. I, I don't know. Like even like you brought up like all the niche areas and arenas, like this jacket I have, uh, you know, my friend Ivy made this jacket, like so getting into farm clothing and things of that nature. So it's just, it's blowing my mind. And I think Houston have definitely have something to say, you know, and show. Yeah, man. Like you said, it's an, a new age, a shift coming on, man. So, so I think everybody just needs to be prepared and kind of expect to see big things coming out of Houston. Yes, it is. Yes, sir. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. All right. So back on aquaponics. Is aquaponics something that I need to do in a controlled setting? Or if I have a backyard and I wanted to set up a, a small aquaponic system, is that possible? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, it's something that can be done in both. Just to think about a controlled environment, you would need some type of um, light to be able to supplement it. But in terms of outside, you can definitely have, you know, small, medium, large systems outside. Um, in a controlled environment, you can have small, medium, large systems as well. You just got to make sure you have the right AC and heating and the correct lighting. It most definitely will work. They're very adaptive. And what kind of lighting are you recommending for uh, aquaponic systems? Um, I would say, you know, your basic grow light. Some people use T5 or LED grow light. Companies from like Bander. So I was just, if you know, search traditional grow lights. You might want to switch out your buds to LED or T5s or traditional energy savers, but just traditional light. I wouldn't so much utilize using a regular light, though it will work. But, you know, if you have to tweak some things, I know sometimes being a farmer or a gardener, you have to be a craft maker or a builder. <laughs> just try to search grow light. <laughs> All right. So do you have uh, do you have a business when it comes to aquaponics? Or is it just a, a passion, a hobby that you're doing? Oh, no, it's a business. So two things, Fresh Life Organic is an agriculture consultant firm for, you know, all things agriculture, whether traditional farms, cows, you can need business plans, design, you know, management. Uh, but primarily we are a farm, so we do two things. But I'm also a part of a company called RST Bioscience, and RST Bioscience focuses on, like, you know, all these aquaponic and hydroponic growing systems and most of them like sustainable agriculture technology. So, um, yeah, you know, we sell systems. We have a farm and a farm hub as well. We have aquaponic systems. Getting the word out and continuing to not only provide these products and services, but to, you know, make sure we do it ourselves too. Like, we don't ever want to lose the, the understanding of and the love and the passion and the art and creativity of just growing your own food, whether it's in ground or using these systems. I think that's kind of where things have been, just the, the fun of it. Because I think the fun brings out creativity. Yeah, I, I agree with that. When it stops being a job, I guess when it stops being fun, then it starts really being a job. And, and I think that's one thing about younger people is they may not have always really wanted to just have a job like everybody says, go get a job. They kind of want to do things their own way and figure it out. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, we go into a, a more of an open society, a social society. I would say, not necessarily so much as of um, you go to college, you you go to high school, graduate, go to college, get a corporate job, and then you work there for thirty years and retire. It's like I think everybody want to, you know, bet on themselves for what. <laughs> That's a fact. Uh, so, do you think that aquaponics and hydroponics will ever replace traditional farming? No, I don't think it would, and I don't think it never. What I think it will replace certain ways we grow certain crops. And crops that's universally used on a day to day, like most of our leafy greens, lettuces, herbs, things of that nature, the medical marijuana and hemp. But I think it's not going to change in terms of like your certain staple crop or your root crops. You know, I think that's going to forever be there. But things like I said, too, like, you know, when you have places like California that's going through drought, that's going through labor issues and no nutrients coming from the lettuces and some of the things that we eat, you know, which is starting to become fillers, the use of certain chemicals, you know, that has affected certain key crops and key things. And if we tweak and adjust a little bit, you know, it'll help. You know, it'll create some opportunities. But I, I don't ever think, you know, even with aquaponics too, you know, it can be used to grow commercial fishes and stuff. So stuff like that to save the ocean. And, but um, I do think a solution, but I don't think it's going to solve the problem, you know. Right. I've been through Central Cali and all those places where they grow all of the lettuce, man. And it's still, it's still crazy to me because those places are hot. Man, 100 plus degrees out there. And, and I see these big, I don't know, big pipes and reservoirs that they have just holding the water. And I just wonder, like, like, where does all that water come from? And who is losing out? Because if you're getting all that water, you have to be taking it from somewhere. So who are you taking that water from? Divergent. Right. Correct. Correct. I have an idea. I don't know how deep the podcast is. I could go too deep into it. But, you know, you got to think of most of these corporate farms or the food that we eat. It's not like it's probably only a few companies or conglomerates or people that own a lot of this land with the commercial food we eat <laughs> in the United States. So I'm going to just leave that out there, you know, follow the money. <laughs> Hey, man, I agree. I 100% agree with that. There's probably only a handful of people involved in it, regardless of what the name says on the packaging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the same thing for the meat that we eat, the chicken. I mean, it's the same people, you know, but the bottom line is the, the, the farmer, the gardener, and the family farmer, like, I think you grow your own food or you connect it to people or the farmer that does, that do grow your food if you like meat or your, your egg product, you know, that's always going to be better and closer because you know you know you were aware you know what went in into it and you know growing your own food is mainly really the only way you know you know where your food comes from so like i said stuff like this i really enjoy because it just gives us another opportunity to see the whole system yeah okay so i know you mentioned how important growing your own food is man and i also think about or i think that growing your own food is important from just the food security side right like what happens if you don't grow your own food and then one day somebody decides that they're going to stop feeding you, like, what are you going to do then? You're going to be stuck, man. And I tell you, I always say like Hurricane Harvey happened in Houston. You had grocery stores that was closed for a week. People were trapped in water for two, three days, four days. Stores closed. 
So just think about how many people didn't have anything to eat or just access. So, you know, just having your own food or food products that's preserved and things that you've grown and stored over time, you know, that's definitely food security, literally. You couldn't have said it better. And that's one thing I really try to do is just, but I try to do it in different ways, but I just try to preach the importance of everybody growing their own food, man. It's like, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's extremely important. Like you just said, whether you're preserving it, growing it fresh, you just need to be growing something. Yes, sir. Yeah, man. Yes, sir. I just never know. Anything can happen. All right. So like I said earlier, when I first uh, we first started, I said I knew you from being extremely active from the whole political side of the food game, man. Like, I think the first time I met you, you were talking to me about an agriculture district. And, and I can't even front. It went over my head that night. And I had to rerun it a few times, man. So if you don't mind, well, first, before we talk about the Ag District, can you kind of tell me and tell the listeners why you are so involved, I guess, on the political side? Or do you even see yourself as being involved on the political side or did I just make that up? I first wanted to say that I do not like politics at all. But from a historical standpoint, too, and I'm, a, I'm actually like a historical political buff, too. I don't like it, but I love politics. Like I understand that I get it and, and the necessity of it. But just from history standpoint, most of the farmers were political people because agriculture deals with everything. Just a, It's the basis of human civilization in our society. Like when you go to D.C., Union Station, it says that like agriculture is the basis. I mean, you can look it up of our human, of the United States economy, of our society. I would say policy and in legislation and, and politics, that's the framework of, you know, again, society and, you know, what laws are created. Where does money go? How are laws created surrounding agriculture and things? So when you have legislation from a federal, a state, and a county level, these are things that's either been voted on or laws that's been created to solve a problem or an issue. So when we speak of like the Agriculture Development District, that is a, a legislative bill that was created in 2000 and 2001 in the Texas Senate or House of Representatives, one of the two. And their law basically, which is, uh, again, the Ag Development District has never been created. I want to keep it in the state of Texas. But the law has passed to create one. So the law has passed, but nobody has ever, has never been followed through on. Nobody ever created it or nobody ever proposed to create it. Okay. And it has to be, it has to go through a Texas county, whether it's the commissioner or or in the city. So the, the basically city council and the commissioners could sign off on it. So on the county and the city level. But the law comes from the state. So when bills and stuff pass the state, it goes to the city and the county for them to enact or change. Whether it's your taxes, whether it's your health care, whether it's your land, anything that's almost tax-based is worth creating a bill, basically. So land is tax issue, right? Because everybody pays taxes for their land, for their home. You know, the American taxpayer, what's the number one thing they hate? Well, you raise my taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so this legislation gives the opportunity to create an agriculture development district, which is just like a water district, which is just like a museum district, any other district that people vote on. But it also 
created to conserve the state's resources, fight urbanization. So when you have a city like Houston that was so land rich, now you're building so many houses, it's causing flooding of that nature. And also, there's not enough place for people to grow food for food security. You can create a district, and that district will create a board. And that board will outline, mainly in the food desert, where these agriculture facilities could be. A uh, the name could be lobby. Like, so you can actually create a bond measure. You know, people might want to have an ag district in their town or in their city. So a bond measure will create a board that advises the district, wherever is the places outlined. And you can get a bond from the county to be able to get, you know, get the board started and going. And when you talk about fighting food, there's the food system and creating jobs and sustainability and just the food access and food is inequality. That's why that legislation was created. But it was created in the early 2000s. So at that time, you would have to think that it probably was an issue then, but they knew it was going to be an issue years later. So now we're at that time to where, okay, you have farm and farm organizations in Houston like Finca or like my good friend Robert Harden. He had a farm and company. And when gentrification happens, companies can go through and just destroy these farms where people are growing food for the community. It's like this country was built off agriculture, off farming and garden. Like protect the farmer, you know, like preserve this history. Okay. So does the agriculture district, does the ag district, does it have to be, is it like a neighborhood or can you select different? Hold on. I think I'm asking, is it a continuous space like a neighborhood or can it be, can you have houses or warehouses or land in different areas around the city that all are part of the same district. Correct. So you can have one on the north side of town. You can have one on the south, on the east, on the west. You can say only one of them. I want to target this thing. Where are the most food insecure food deserts? We're inside of the city of Houston or inside of the county, around the county. As long as it's in the county or, or it's an agreement way made with like the county with Fort Bend as well, it, the ag district could be there. So a district is nothing but really creating a board and creating, you know, a framework for, you know, farm organizations and farms. And then, you know, the tax exemption part of it. Farmers should be tax exempt on their land on agriculture property. But if you get a chance, like really check out the legislation on it and just read it. And we're looking at the food system here in Houston. I mean, this could definitely be used to create a model for other cities across the U.S. that's fighting these same issues. So are there no ag districts anywhere in America right now? There's one in New York and I think Philadelphia. One in, uh, one in New York. And they create that same thing. They create it through a county. They have a board. They have all these different locations. And they have these agriculture facilities that's backed by the county. So it's basically the county and the state saying, okay, so we're going to support farmers and we're not going to tax them heavy um, on land. Even though they have ag exemptions, but when... You have a farm and somebody wants to build build homes, you know, what usually happens is they buy out the land from around them and the farmer is like dead lot. So then they come right back and build, you know, high rises and things. So now there's no more conserving, you know, land in cities, in cities and in counties anymore. It's just urbanization, building houses, building houses, building homes, which is nothing wrong with that. But if you create these little pockets or districts inside these communities or areas that you say, hey, we're going to conserve, 
the land and we're going to support these agricultural facilities in these areas, you know, county-wise or state-wise. That's what builds resiliency. That's what preserves culture. You talk about earlier, food insecurity. These are the things that are solutions from a policy side, from a governmental side, because policy um, creates law. And when you create law, that means you have to put money behind it. When you put money behind it, I mean, you have to be solving some type of problem or solution. So we know this is a problem and legislation like this that's already created could be the framework and the solution, you know, from a political standpoint, from a policy standpoint. And sometimes we got to look at that because farming and garden is a business side of it. It's an education and programming side of it. It's a political um, and policy side of it. Workforce development side of it. Uh, and workforce development and industry is almost the same thing. And also research. So people have nonprofits and businesses in all those different sectors. And it's about identifying where these industries or organizations needed to solve these problems and solutions. What's up, world? I hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, then you should head over to YouTube and subscribe to the Big City Gardener YouTube channel. I'm going to have videos to go along with a lot of these podcasts. And besides that, over there, I give you a bunch of information to help you just grow it and even to help you just grow it better. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, I can say that I don't know. I don't know enough about the policy side of food and agriculture. I think when I look at it, and that's why I like to have conversations like these, right? Because I look at it from kind of driving the demand, maybe, maybe getting more people interested in gardening. And I guess if we get more people interested in gardening, then they can, or at least in my mind, you get more people interested in gardening, then more people will want to talk about these things like the ag district. So the first step if you're trying to get this ag district started is just to get a board of directors. I would say it, it wouldn't necessarily be a board of directors, but it would be a, a group of subject matter experts in the field of, you know, agriculture in the city of Houston. And one, you know, you got to think of that, that board is like the lobbying organization for the farmers and gardeners per se. And yeah, I would say, let's just say it is a board of directors. Okay. And um, from there, we would have to approach our county, you know, our county commissioner's court and, and make a mo and, you know, present the plan and they have to make a motion to explore a feasibility study that if this will work in Houston or not or in the county or not. And from there, they will pass that on to whether it's the community service department or the programs department to be able to create this. So our county commissioner, which is Helena Hidalgo, and our county precinct chair or commissioners, they're the ones who ultimately can decide to create a district or not. And that's kind of like the bottom line. So some of these things don't work without community support or, you know, organizations that is, is coming together and working together. You know, not just farmers or gardeners, but you don't have so many people who have so many businesses that are based off of the small farmers or gardeners or, you know, craft product makers that make juices or, you know, milk and honey and all these things. So this is a economic issue. I mean, if you look at it, you know, we're small businesses. You know, we don't, we're farmers and we're gardeners. We don't want to get left out per se in the in the big scheme of things. If you look at it from a governmental standpoint, the USDA creates a farm bill every four years. And these farm bills, some of these laws are made and created
ready to support big corporate farms and companies. You know, so we're saying on the county level and on the city level, the county could support us as small farmers and gardeners and create laws, you know, to support us in our city and in our county. This is a very important time right now. It very is because you have people all across America that lining up at food bank lines, starving or whatever for food. And, you know, we could be, they could be growing their own food or we could be teaching them how to grow their own food. And all the counties in these cities have all this land, all this money and infrastructure. It's like we can't depend on them to feed us forever. Like we have to start feeding ourselves. So it's not just the politicians and the corporate farms. Like we as human beings gotta, I mean, or people in society have to kind of take ownership too. Right. See, so it sounds like the ag district is very similar to, to an idea that I've had in my head, which is just, I think that every neighborhood should have its own basic farm growing produce for that neighborhood so yeah you know what i mean like and there's already farms in some of these neighborhoods and i think it just needs to be replicated so like you mentioned earlier finca i know they're doing things on the east side of houston you mentioned ivy i know she's out there in sunnyside doing big things Chaz on the north side so i feel like we have people in place who would benefit from the ag district but it's almost like you need suits and other people behind it also. Nah, I don't think you need the suits. I think I think the farmers got to get together and we got to stand together because, I mean, and we have to approach them with a, a reasonable plan to get these things going. And again, like, we're taxpaying citizens. I mean, we're, we're anchored in this city. Again, back on the farmers. Like, it started with the farmers and the land. America was built off farming, labor, and it's going to keep going back to that. So, you know, what makes the farmer and the garden so special because we're able to see every aspect of everything. I mean, the math side, the science side, the application side. We're actually feeding ourselves and feeding people. Like, so even the legality side of it, you know, we're problem solvers. We're the problem solvers. Like, we're here. We're there. It's not a shot to any politician, you know, whether red or blue. You know, nobody of any descent or color or anything. It's just the farmer or gardener, I think... We are the key to a lot of things, and sometimes we're overlooked. We really are. We're going into a new, a new generation and a new time. So the farmers, the gardeners, everybody comes together with an agenda. Ag district, how I can do big things for the city. We approach the people in the county. And if enough people come together with a solid plan, then hopefully something like an ag district can be born. Right. And inside of the ag district, period, it clearly states how to start the ag district or which way it goes got to make a motion before the court. I made a motion before the court. And, and you know, I'm on your show and I'm going to say it. <laughs> I made a motion before the court. They entertained the idea. They wanted to move the ag district to more of the, the county side of it, not necessarily in the city. But, I mean, the county owns land inside the city. The city owns land. You adopted the garden at Cashmere. I think, you know, we adopt gardens. Like, so it's not like the land isn't there. The infrastructure is there. It's, again, the county doing what's needed for the people. And it's just period. And something like setting aside a district to make sure that we can continue to grow food and, you know, conserve the land for the state and for the people, especially in these food deserts. I don't think that's not, that's not action a lot. And, you know, if we take combined measures on building more roads and bridges, spending money on things that I'm not going to even bring up, 
that we probably spend things on as a, a taxpayer. What's so hard about putting a bond together for ag district to grow food or plant trees, you know? I think that's the best thing if I was a politician to do for any and all communities for his people, no matter what race it is, to make sure that if in case of another emergency like Harvey or Ike where it's flooded, in each of these communities throughout the community, they, those communities know they have a centralized place to go. They do it for the multi-center service center for, what's the name, for emergencies or flooding. Everybody go to the multi-service center. So, you know, the county can produce food. It's more than attainable. Another thing is, I'm going to say it again, I, I, I sometimes my big mouth. The big three, I mean, it's big nonprofit agriculture organizations in Houston. I'm not going to say any names. They should be lobbying for the farmer to get things like this created because their systems and networks that they're built off are built off us continuing to be able to grow food, you know, locally and regionally. So, you know, that it's collaboratives and certain coalitions and nonprofit organizations that receive government money from the state and the county to do programs like this. So, <laughs> come on, let's work together. Let's unite. Why aren't they being done? And even if we don't, I think it's right back on the farmer. The farmer and the gardener has always worked together. People that's doing initiatives, you know, to build co-op like the Shrine Urban Farm or like Ivy doing the Black Farmer Box with some of us and some other farmers. We might have to just do it ourselves. Just do it ourselves. Anybody else can't support it. We can't be a part of it coming together. I'm just saying we can't wait and depend on institutions to take care of us. We got to make sure we... We can take care of ourselves first. Yeah, I think that's a that's a powerful message right there. Stop waiting for other people and do it yourself. Yeah, in those gardens. So do you think places like food deserts, if people within these food deserts stop waiting for other people and come together and try to tackle the problem of food insecurity themselves, you think that's the key and that can stop these food deserts? That's the basis. Okay. It's the basis of environment because... What happens is, you remember I started off by saying start small and go big? Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Starting small is getting people in small urban environments or getting everybody around your family, friends, and people inside of communities and communities. They grow their food on a small micro level. So now they have enough and enough network to feed themselves and to feed everybody else and to make all these products. And then from there, they're going to say, hey, we could grow on a larger scale together. You know, we got to do something with this stuff. So that's when the medium farms or the, the farms that not necessarily hundreds of thousands of acres, they could be able to grow. And then from there, you know, in the rural area and parts, they're already growing farms. So now from the smallest part from program education, research and production, people are doing it on their own and they're working inside of a network. So I think that's the future of, of farming. It's going to be more local, the gardener, the farmer, regional, regional, and they're going to build these networks to where they can get food from each other throughout this network without necessarily depending on food from these larger institutions or these other places. They're going to end up saving money. Uh, everybody's not going to do it, but it is definitely going to fit, like I said, a small regional farm. That's going to be the thing. Network. The family farm is going to come back. Because just think about it. When coronavirus happened, all the borders crashed. Farmers, corporate farms were throwing away food. Everybody started back going to farmers' markets and growing foods. And, you know, it just changed the whole paradigm. You 
know, you have more younger farmers. People are starting to be aware. Even the, the small minority or African-American or Latino and indigenous farmers, they're being celebrated. Cause, you know, farming and gardening was looked at as a, a racial thing, you know, just from the past of, you know, prison labor, farm slavery, and all these connotations. Like now, it's like everybody are alike and open getting back to their true selves, no matter what race, color, or religion. It's going back to just natural, the way God intended it. True. So you had talked, you had kind of mentioned on, uh, I guess, different races that used to be or play a very important role in farming. And it kind of looked like maybe it skipped some generations or people kind of got away from farming within these generations. But you saying that you starting to see a shift of people going back towards just nature and gardening and farming in general. Oh, yeah, most definitely. One, for, for health reasons, everybody's getting back active. The prison industrial complex, all, a lot of these farms, they don't not only grow food for themselves, they grow food to sell publicly traded companies on the stock market, on, on prison farms. And then from a slavery aspect, America was built off labor from slaves. That's just period. That's just a historical fact. So what happened was in the early 19th century, in the 1900s, farms started declining, you know, when slavery left. Because, of course, you don't have that labor anymore. So now you have, it's like, okay, we're going to give them 40 acres of the fuel, but we never got that. Instead, they created the 1890 and 1862 universities, which is the state colleges, the A&M, and that land was given first. 1862 and the 1890s is what created Agriculture Act, like Act of creating like state colleges, and that was at the same time period of reconstruction where they were deciding to give African Americans of 40 acres and a mule. European immigrants that came to the United States, and they created those state schools, and they educated them, and they gave them land to farm. So many Polish, Irish, that second wave of Europeans. So when they create the 1890s, they create the agriculture schools, like in Prairie Views, Alabama, and them. those were agriculture schools. Those schools created many inventions that changed the modern agriculture to this day. But because they're a part of the state systems, they took our inventions again to be able to pass on to the 1862 universities or the, you know, the second wave of European immigrants. So we never got our 40 acres in the mule. And after that, they created technology and after they created technology to be able to cut down on labor next thing they did or the biggest thing was when we started america started importing from other countries so that just basically left that just left agriculture sitting dormant and it went from small family farms to local and regional farms like what i'm saying we need to get back to now to corporate farming to those guys that own all the land in those farms in california and those that one percent dictates and controls food that's being tra- imported and exported in the United States. So we don't need to import our food. We can have enough land to grow our own. So one percent of people that decide what happens in this whole food system and that owns most of the land that the food is being grown on. And of that one percent, it's only point three zero point three percent of farmers that's even farming commercially. So this is what's creating that issue of corporate large farms. That and when these disasters and things happen, it totally shuts off the food system because they don't have they're large. Anything happens like those ports closed and farmers was throwing away food and doing those things. I mean, it was going into mass hysteria, you know, when COVID happened. So the food system changed to a more local, regional food system. And people wanted to start growing their own food. 
And that, I think, opened up and enlightened people's eyes to like, hey, we've been growing food. This is a part of us. Like, it's in our DNA. Like, throughout all human civilization, even from a spiritual aspect, most of all the Bibles and teachings, no matter what religion, they all correlate or relate back to plants or growing your own food or trees. And stuff. So it's us connecting more on a spiritual and enlightened air mind state first. And then we can get into the historical part, why people stop, the medical part, why people sick, and then the business part of it. Like what really happened here? How was this wealth built? You know, and if these people that built this wealth for this country and this land and we're back at a time of crisis again, we may need them again to fix the side this issue. <laughs> Well, <laughs> think about it. Like, if we're talking about sustain, sustainability, jobs, the environment, who are all the poor people? Or people in poverty is people of color. So if we can take their creativity, their mentality, and the same thing they did to build these countries and uplift these countries, whether black or brown, we can solve a lot of these issues. Because, I mean, who know better to solve the issues than the people that's in it? So that's why we need to, the power, we don't need more politicians, we need more farmers and gardeners. <laughs> All right. So now that leads me to another question. How do we get more kids interested in gardening and farming? Or do you think that that shift has already started to happen? Today, that's younger. They are creative. They are using technology. They're not just only farming and gardening. They're doing art, making videos. Like I said, IBS clothes. We're making products. You know, you may have things. So we got to make it cool again because the stigma of farming isn't cool. It's, when you look at farmers or gardeners, they always have like, and this is nothing against race or anything, an old person that's, you know, just talking. Man, he's lame, bro. He's lame. Or sitting on a picture. He's lame. They put a picture up of a lame dude and nobody wants to try to be like a lame, man. Nobody wants to be the square. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it gotta be cool. We gotta, you know, it gotta make it culturally like, like with videos, with with the food, like with the music, and so it gotta make it, you know, like a lifestyle. And it is a lifestyle, but right now it's looked at as like something that's dirty. I think now people are getting over all the historical parts about it. Like I said, even for older farmers, like they're dying out. You know, my uncles, my mentors, you know, they get older. So it's really time to pass that torture. I think that's definitely important to pass it down to the next generation, though. But I think what you touched on earlier about making it cool, making people understand that this is not something that just your old man used to do with things like that, man. Like you said earlier, there's kind of like a new wave of people coming with it. So I think we are trying to push it forward. Before I let you go, I need you to do more than one thing. First, I need you to like, comment, subscribe to the podcast. Second, I need you to tell a friend or two about the show if you enjoyed it. And if you have anybody you think I need to talk to, I should interview Send the name over, put it in the comments, or send me an email, igrow at Big City Gardener. And check me out, man, on Instagram and on all social media platforms, Big City Gardener. We out. Oh, almost forgot. Just grow it. <laughs>